Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on February 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and joining us today is HLN anchor and journalist Susan Hendricks. Susan, I'm so excited you're here. Welcome to the program. And it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to talk about Delphi and how the public can still help. Believe it or not, it's been almost four years and it's still unsolved. And that's why you're here, because HLN, you and the incredible team have been working not only on a two-part television documentary on the fourth anniversary of the murder of these two little girls, but you've also have a podcast series that really is I love the way the podcast is structured in the sense that each chapter is like a call to action because it is still unsolved. And because the anniversary is coming up on February 14th, Valentine's Day, and because of your special, we're so excited that you're here and that your team that you work with um, will also be joining us, which I think is is incredible. What pains me, though, Susan, is that given the level of detail, meaning you have video of a potential killer, you have audio, there's DNA, fingerprints, evidence from the crime scene, but yet it, it, it appears that there are no leads on the killer. I think another player in all of this in the sad story of the brutal murder of Abby and Libby, just 13 and 14 years old, day off from school, decided to go down to the Monon High Bridge, which kids did back in the day, is the town of Delphi, which is just 3,000 people, a max, very small town. So the innocence of that small town, I think, worked against them in terms of solving this because the search was called off that night by the sheriff, Sheriff Tobe Lesenby, who I've spoken to several times, and he said that he has some regrets. And part of his regrets are calling that off because he thought, oh, the girls will show up. They will. And then once the bodies were discovered, he called off 
the bloodhounds, meaning he never anticipated that this would go on the way it has. And four years later, someone possibly could be roaming free still in the small town of Delphi because you see the man walking on the bridge. You hear his voice down the hill. It's jarring to hear. You know that Libby was a hero and that she was well aware enough to hit record on her cell phone and that she knew something was off that day to hit record and still no justice, knowing that they knew something was wrong and still unable to solve it. But the authorities and everyone in that town say they believe one day it will be solved. I I love the frankness with which you tackle this this issue of the sheriff basically saying, oh, that night, I think the girls are just lost mm-hmm. because what was lost was precious time. Absolutely. And in a sense of the town, you know where you grow up, right? I grew up in New Jersey and you know what you know. So I thought I grew up in a small town because I knew my neighbors. My mom and dad knew every one in the, on the block, but I had no idea no idea what a small town really was until I got to Delphi. None. I'm talking so tight and so small that everyone knows everyone. Um, But yet the homes are far apart because of farmland. It's just a unique setting of kind of Mayberry innocence, you know, Tobe, we've become friends. Barbara will talk to it as well. And Drew, and he said to me, Susan, it used to be Mayberry. Nobody locked their doors. And now no one trusts anyone. Yeah, I never believed that until I traveled the country as a crime reporter that no one locks their doors. Like, I don't get that. Okay, I am doing this podcast with the door open, but it's right in front of me. <laughs> okay. You really think so, wait, that can't happen, but it does. It does. Yeah, it, it is. Now, not only has HLN and the team that you all work with done an outstanding job of documenting this crime over the last few years, we also covered it on Crime Watch Daily as well. I think every major news organization and crime organization did. Now, we're going to talk more about this double murder, but we want to let everyone know that a little later, we're also going to have an update on a criminal case against the grandfather who accidentally dropped his 18-month-old granddaughter from the window of a cruise ship while I was docked in Puerto Rico. The toddler died. We have an update on that case that we've been following here on True Crime Daily. But first, let's get back to the case that we're talking about. This is the fourth anniversary of the Delphi murders. Now, this happened on February 14th. Valentine's Day is when the girls were found. So four years ago, two eighth graders best of friends, 13-year-old Abigail Williams and 14-year-old Liberty German were found murdered. Now, they have there have been no arrests, Susan, as you said. It, is this being treated as a cold case? No, and the authorities there, absolutely, to be frank, despise the term cold case because they believe it means they're not working on it. Um, and the new prosecutor says, look, we're working every day. Um Everyone is so involved with the tip line as an example, no matter what tip is called in. And you could go down a rabbit hole online um, and everyone's a suspect, which even the sheriff said, look, I know I am. Mike Libby's grandfather said, I know I am at CrimeCon. And they're willing to say, look, we didn't do it and be interviewed. But they follow up on every tip. And of course, when you don't give out the cause of death, you don't give out exactly Anything, really. just that The condition of the bodies. The okay, Susan, the bodies, yeah. th- that to me is very unusual. 
Obviously, police always hold back information for a lot of excellent reasons. John Mark Carr comes to mind with JonBenet Ramsey. So you want to avoid that. Okay. So, Susan, why do you think that they have not told us what the method of murder was in this case, how they were killed? Because, honestly, my mind says, did they fall from the bridge? Did someone push them? Well, depending on where... (sighs) You have tuned into this case. And if you know that their bodies were discovered um, down the hill on this plot of land um, and Abby and Libby were next to each other, we do know that. And we do know that some sort of signatures were found near the body. But the cause of death, we don't know. But you know. When you say signature, what do you mean by signature, Susan? And Barbara can talk to this as well. The um, prosecutor at the time, Ives, Robert Ives, he said that there are signatures left at the scene, meaning something unique that you would walk up on and say, this is odd. This shouldn't wow. be here. That's all the information, though. And Barbara can talk to this that okay. we have in terms of exactly what is it? It's, is it something he collected? So it leaves a lot of room for speculation, right? It, but they say, look, we are keeping this close to the best for a reason, because we not only want an arrest, we want a prosecution. So we're holding this. We'll give you bits of information. We'll give you the audio saying, guys down the hill. We'll give you the video. We'll give you the still shot. We'll give you the two sketches. Um, But we won't give you any more than that. And it's frustrating to a lot of people thinking, what are they doing? Are they not doing enough? Because as time goes on, you think, I don't know, is this ever going to be solved? They have DNA. They wonder if it's enough. Will genealogy solve this? We don't know. We only get bits and pieces of information, and they say by design. So in a little bit, we're going to be joined by the podcast hosts and producers, Barbara McDonald and Andrew Iden, who really have done a stellar job of reporting this as well. And and I love how you all are doing it in this multimedia way with the television documentary and the podcast and just attacking the conversation from from all these different perspectives. But before they join us, Susan, let's talk about the case, the murders, maybe. I I always love to do things chronologically because I think it really helps people get into the place and the time and things sometimes reveal themselves in real time. So let's do that and see how things were revealed and and figure out where the red flags are in the holes. Mm -hmm. So back to February 13th. So the day before is when the girls went off to this bridge. It's a popular hiking spot. They were driven there by Libby's older sister, Kelsey. Again, we're talking about the two girls, Abby and Libby. So they were going to take a hike and they were also going to take some photographs, I understand, of the bridge. And it is really a spectacular looking old bridge. It's an abandoned railroad bridge. It's what, like 100 years old or close. Um, And it's very high up. And we will be, while we're having this discussion, for those of you who are watching and not listening, we'll have uh, pictures and video of the bridge in the area that will give you an idea of of why people are drawn to it. But at the same time, I'm scared to death because I just look at it and I look at those railings. I'm like, who in their right mind is going to walk across this thing? Same thing. And uh, when I first got to the town of Delphi, my first trip there, I've been there several times and gotten to know the family. And Kelsey was nice enough to drive us there in her car a couple minutes away. And she said to me, I felt guilty because my sister Libby kept asking, can you drive us here? Can you drive us there? And she would always say no. 
So she thought, mm, I really don't want to drive him to the bridge. It's a few minutes away. I should. I'm guilty. I should do it. I feel guilty as an older sister. So she said, all right, on the way to work, come in my car. So Abby and Libby get in her car. The windows are down. It's a day off from school, a makeup snow day. And it's abnormally warm, like 60 degrees. So picture that in Indiana. They're excited to go out. Not much to do again. Small town. Sure. So uh, Libby's grandma says, why not get you away from the screens? She drops him at the bridge and says to Libby, don't forget your sweater, what grandma said. And she waves goodbye and that was the last time she saw them. So they walk to the bridge and based on the Snapchat photos, they are on the bridge and Libby takes a picture of Abby. And after that, we can only... So that was, so Susan, that was at 2.07 because that gives us not only a a timeline, right? It, It tells us they are still alive at this time. It also confirms Libby was the only one who had, right? Libby is the one who had the cell phone. Yes. So one of them at least had a cell phone. The other thing that that photo did was it gave authorities a picture specifically of where the girls were, right? So you could match up the photo and say, okay, we know at two o'clock the girls were here. Yeah. And it okay. looked like they were having fun. So dropped off, I'd say around 1.30, 1.35, pictures taken, Snapchat, a little after two. Then Libby, they deciphered from her phone, took a still picture. And Mike, her grandfather, said to me, I believe that at that particular time, Libby took the original picture, thinking I might go home and say, Grandpa, look at this creepy guy we saw on the bridge. That's what so that expected. So that's, so you're saying that Libby, with the one with the cell phone, yeah. took a picture of this guy on the bridge. Which, yeah. And that's in addition to the video of the guy. Mm-hmm. And... What they're saying is, in terms of the video and him walking, it's grainy because that's the best they can get, meaning there's a lot of still shots, right, in the video and the audio. So there's a lot that authorities have had to edit, if you will. It's uh, at the press conference in April of 2019. They released more audio, which was just guys, then a pause down the hill. So we've gotten So, Susan, the the first... The when the girls well, let's get back to the girls and then we'll get to the details again of these videos and the audio, because even though it sounds like, oh, you have audio and video, it's really very tiny pieces. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, at 315, the girls were supposed to meet at the same location that they were dropped off. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was dad is picking them up. Okay. Yeah. And they didn't show up? No. Libby's not answering the phone. Right. So Libby's dad calls Becky, his mom, Libby's grandmother. She's not here. I don't know where she is. What do you mean she's not there? Well, she's not here. Okay. So then the grandmother calls Kelsey, older sister. Have you heard from her? No, we haven't. Panic doesn't set in yet. It doesn't set in yet because it's not dark. And we do know that Libby's afraid of the dark. And that's when Becky told me she started to panic once she knew it got dark. Like she, this wouldn't be happening. They just don't lose track of time. So they thought injury. A lot of people in the town. Becky said to Mike, we need to get on this. Mike called the police and a, a search ensued at that particular time. Let's say four. So um, by 530, yeah. they are officially reported missing. And as we mentioned at the top of the program, that the sheriff called off the search that night saying that he didn't believe that they were in danger. He just thought they were lost, which really. And I think in hindsight, he he was concerned about um, 
the safety, which the is safety of the searchers, right? Right, because it's so dense and it's so dark. And he spoke about the bridge earlier. I meant to mention this when I was first there, and it, I decided to walk ahead from the photojournalists, and I kept walking and walking and walking. And it was freezing. It was February 2019, and it was freezing, and I'm alone. And my mom said to me, "Be careful there." I said, "Mom, I'm fine. It's I'm covering a story. I'm fine." And her voice in my head, and I thought, "This is." really isolating. This is different than I thought. I played in the backyard. I played in the woods. This is different. It's dark and it's deep and it's isolating. And it was daylight. And I thought if anyone screamed, would anybody hear? I don't think so. So I start, I turn around and run back. The photographers then we all go. And I can't even put not one foot. I had no fear, maybe 10, 11, 12, like they didn't. My age, I couldn't even step on that. I'm talking almost 70 feet high with huge gaps. So I could see how some of the locals would think, oh, maybe they slipped. If someone fell, they're not recovered from They're not. So when you're out there and you say, oh my gosh. So when you see that video of this man strolling on the bridge, you know immediately he's a local. You know. For someone right. and you that casual. And you can see him bridge. kind of bouncing around. He's wearing a blue jacket and blue jeans and it's very... And I thought you could, say he's stepping weirdly because of the gap. So he may... But he's casually doing it. He's moving ahead. He doesn't look fearful. He looks like he has... There's a mission. And we do hear, the, you know, a little bit about down the hill. Mm-hmm. When it's unclear whether in the video, whether he is saying to go down the hill, or there's something down the hill. It's really hard to figure out. Um, it is very important that that video was actually taken by Libby herself. And the question is, did she have the forethought to say, oh my God, something's not right here and I'm going to videotape this? Authorities say absolutely. And whether it was in her pocket at the time, whether uh, down the hill was muffled, they call her a hero. Kelsey also told me, uh, Libby's sister, that she calls Abby hero for staying with Libby. Now, we do know that the family members who chose to listen to more of that cell phone footage have done that. Um, We believe it's about two minutes, maybe a little under. They're not releasing any more because they say we don't believe it can solve the crime. So are they shielding the family from what you're going to hear on there? The girls being in duress? Possibly, probably, which is why they're not including that. It's not to say this is what we're giving you. It's saying this is all we got. And uh, we believe that this guy is is part of society. At least that's what they said at the presser in April 2019, saying he could be in this room. We know it's power to you. In hindsight, I look back at that press conference. I was there. It was jarring to say he's in the room. I couldn't believe it. Now, in hindsight, I feel like maybe he was baiting him. It was open to the public. Everyone was invited. Were they inviting him to? Possibly. Probably. And uh, But they need, they say, that extra tip, that one more tip. And uh, it hasn't come yet. So it was the next day around noon that the girls' bodies were found on the north bank of Deer Creek, not that far from where they were dropped off. So the key piece of evidence that we've been talking about here would be this video of a man on the bridge Mm -hmm. and also a little bit of the audio that goes with it where we hear the audio clip of a man saying, down the hill. And we're going to play that for everyone. And we're going to play it throughout this so you can hear it and you can see this video of the man 
you know, with the with the blue jacket and the blue jeans, who and, looks yes, like on. every man. Yes, every man, which is right because it's it's grainy enough and you don't really see much. But they added at the press conference again in April two thousand nineteen something I've never heard of or seen of. So Barbara and I are sitting front row and thinking, okay, there's something draped over like an easel with red. And I, I was doing live shots saying, I don't know what's behind me. Is this pertinent information? Yeah, it was pertinent. It looks completely different than the first sketch. So the family members are thinking, wait a minute, we just spent two years sending out flyers of the first sketch. And then this guy is what we're looking for. What's going on here? They also had us listen to what sounded like a young guy saying, guys, and I talked to my kids that way. Hey, guys, come on. It was friendly. But they said, uh, Superintendent Doug Carter said, guys are down the hill, same guy, same person. And I believe he was trying, it was edited, meaning it's from chunks of the cell phone footage. So guys down the hill, guys down the hill. I don't think it was in that order. They won't say, but when you hear it, it sounds very different. Um, and something that stood out to me that I think is worth mentioning, it's Becky, um, Libby's grandmother, said, I was so distraught looking at the new younger guy in the sketch. And then she said, and then it dawned on me, I had an epiphany, that when you're young, very young, 12, 13, everybody looks old, right? Yes. So maybe the sketch looked like the older guy. And when you're old, everybody looks young. When right. you're both 30, everybody looks young. So maybe it's it's a combination of people who saw what they saw based on their age range, does it equal that guy? It, it's amazing that it was two years after the girls were discovered murdered that they released a second sketch. So two years into this investigation, there are two sketches. Then they released the additional audio where you hear the man say, guys, down the hill. Let's just pause a second and make sure that everyone can hear the video. We're going to play the clip now. Susan, do you think that in that audio, do you think that he's instructing the girls to go down the hill or do you think he's suggesting something down the hill or frankly, whatever it is we read into it, it's it's anybody's guess? My personal opinion based on the reporting and based on the time I've spent there is that it comes from two different times at that day. That guys was earlier in the day, could be wrong, and down the hill came, it could be moments later, but down the hill was more instructive did he show a weapon? Did they scream? We don't know. Were they scared of what he showed them? Because if you look in the pockets and you can analyze, you can't really tell. Was he holding something? His hands are in his pockets. Again, 70 feet down. Seems to have no problem with his hands in his pockets. So did he scare them enough? Down the hill was instructed. Guys may have been on approach. That's my opinion. So now we're going to play a clip from the HLN documentary that is coming out this weekend. And right after the clip, we will be joined by the podcast hosts and producers. Here's the clip. By the spring of 2019, the public had at least a handful of leads that might help in identifying the killer. We had two sketches. We had four words. We had a very short video clip and the still images that could be pulled from that video. I pressed Carroll County Sheriff Tobe Lesenby to see if I could extract any more information about other key pieces of evidence that the police might be holding back. Is there more audio from him on the tape than what's been released? Uh, not that I am aware of. 
Could you release more of the video? Um, I, I think people anticipate that there's something, if you will, earth-shattering that's going to jump out at them and go, hey, it's so-and-so. That all of you guys watching it every couple of weeks haven't noticed yet. Right. I asked him about fingerprints. There were some fingerprints collected. Uh, do you know if that, those fingerprints belong to the killer? That I do not know. And same with DNA. You have DNA. Yes. Do you have his DNA? Him we don't know. How helpful has that video been? I know there are still items within that video that are, that are still being studied and, and considered. And so I still consider it a positive key piece of, of evidence that eventually will be used in the courtroom. Is it fair to say it's several minutes long? It's not as long as what you would think, <laughs> to say several minutes now. So now we're bringing on Barbara McDonald and Andrew Iden, the producers and the hosts of the podcast. Welcome to the program, you two. Outstanding work. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for hey, having yeah. us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Barbara, um, I got to hand it to you. You're trying every which way <laughs> to get information out of the sheriff. You are extricating everything you can. So it sounds like there's a little bit of DNA, mm -hmm. some fingerprints. It's astonishing to me that you have that plus this pretty clear video. I mean, it's grainy, but you do get a sense of the body shape, right? You do get a, clearly the clothes and all of that, even if you can't really make out the face. So you have video, you have audio, DNA, fingerprints. Barbara, mm -hmm. how is it possible that we don't know who killed these girls? It's, it's so frustrating and so surprising to so many people, not only those of us who are watching it and reporting on this story, but to the families and to even law enforcement. Uh, you would think that somebody would know who this is, recognize that voice, recognize that outfit or him walking on that bridge and call it in. And that hasn't happened yet. I, I don't think that there's one name that law enforcement has that they're all just waiting for enough evidence to prove that one person. I think that a lot of the investigators have different ideas about maybe who is responsible here. A lot of our profilers have said that this person is probably not committing crimes. He's probably living a very normal life in between these big crimes. And so he's not somebody who's drawing attention to himself. But what I was going to say is I think that sometimes you do have somebody who knows who this person is. And for whatever reason, they're not motivated enough to come forward yet. Whether they're scared or whether they think it's not their place or whatever is going on in their own head, they don't come forward. And sometimes it takes a long time for that person to finally be willing to go, I, I do know something and, and here it is. Barbara and Andrew, can you give me any sense of, I find it astonishing that police have not said how the girls were killed. That is fairly rare in the world of crime. Generally, we're told some detail of the manner of death, but they've been really tight-lipped on this. And so that's why I said my, my head races to all these different thoughts. It's like, did they fall off the bridge? Did they trip? Did something happen? You all say you know for sure that without question that they were murdered. Any ideas how they are so certain of this, Andrew? Uh, you know, 
It's 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 a difficult question to answer because you know we you know we have pushed these investigators and we've used this metaphor of you you said tight lipped I would say that's a bit of an understatement based on <laughs> the information they've given. Um, it's almost like we've walked up to kind of this wall and we've gotten as far as we can get and we're just trying to chip away at that and get through and get some more details. Um, I do think you know obviously it's a situation where you know, you can also do the reverse engineer of what didn't happen. And, you know, there has been discussion and conjecture about were they pushed, was there a fall? I don't think that's the case. Uh, based on just the way the investigators characterize what they saw at the scene, you know, they, they use adjectives like brutal. horrific, brutal, can't unsee this. So we know that whatever, you know, and this is just from from what they've said, I think the assumption is whatever the the way that they were killed or the manner of death was something that goes far beyond what most investigators are used to, which is, you know, kind of your general, and there's no such thing as a run-of-the-mill murder, obviously, but of course. it's just something that goes beyond, above and beyond kind of what we're all kind of used to. And so if the manner of murder was so horrific, and so violent based on your reporting and DNA and fingerprints have been left behind plus video and audio. What do you think is, is the, is the holdup here? Why do you think this one is so hard to crack, especially in a small town where everybody knows each other? I think it's possible that this is somebody who hasn't committed a crime before or, or hasn't been caught for committing a crime before so he's not in the system. Um, this could be his first crime. We don't really know. Um, but I also think that this is somebody who put a lot of effort and planning into this and and took steps to make sure he wasn't caught. And Anna, we talked about, sorry, Barbara, we talked about small towns. Drew was from a small town like Delphi. So he could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we were there, it was funny because Susan being from Jersey, there were some things about the small town dynamics that I don't think Susan necessarily understood. And I had to say, Susan, wait, I got to tell you, I'm from a town about the same size in Virginia. This is how things work. The chief, the fire chief is not like a paid position. He's, you know, this is a thing where he spends all his time here. It is, there's a very fraternal element to it. Everybody knows everybody, the police, the fire department, the sheriff's office, that they all, you know, there's, you know, so-and-so's brother-in-law is on the sheriff's, you know, is a sheriff's deputy while his sister-in-law is with the fire department. So everyone does know each other. And if you don't know them, you know their brother or their wife or their sister or and the football player is now a detective. He's exactly, exactly. And so he's a cab driver, and there he and, is. The and that's why you know Daryl Stared, who's the chief of police, has known Mike Patty for you know virtually his entire life. So like, it fire chief, fire chief. I'm sorry. <laughs> and Mike right. Patty is because some people may be right. hearing this Mike for the Patty, first time. Mike, Mike Patty is Libby's grandfather. And we're gonna and, we have a clip that we're gonna play in a little bit from Crime Watch Daily um, because. Like I said, we covered it extensively as well, and, and, and we do want to hear from the family. And a but, shout but, out to Mike. He's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. I mean, to think about the hell he's been thrown back and what he's been willing to give us and open his home to us and, give, and feed us spaghetti with his wife. But, I mean, you can't ask for a more generous person in terms of, oh, you need to interview this person? Let me give him a call. I mean, that open and that nice and that he, he wants yeah. solved. And, and, you know, Mike Patty is kind of the, uh, the lead dog in this thing in terms of a relentless pursuit 
of figuring this out. But you know, and Mike, he's a, he's a he's a tough you know uh, Midwestern guy who likes to you know clear snow off of his driveway and tend to you know work in his shop. And it, and I always think about you know we were there last summer. I believe it was Labor Day. We were at their home and they were having a cookout. And Mike and I were just kind of talking in the garage. And he kind of let his guard down and he was like, Drew, I got to tell you, man, we had plans, Becky and I, we had plans to retire. We had a whole life ahead of us of, you know, the girls going away to school, going off to college. Like they had, they had plans and Mike is a planner and he, and he's very detail oriented. And the, the honesty, when he said that to me of like, I had a whole thing going here that after February 14th, that's all gone. That's off the map. And his entire life has now taken a complete hard left turn that I don't think he ever anticipated. This is another example. I'm sorry. I texted him this morning. Just say, hey, I'm going to show. Is anything you want to say? He's like, I just want to say thank you to everyone um, involved for keeping the story out there. That's what we need. And uh, tell Drew he's got to get the shovel when he's here. He's got to shovel my walkway. So he's able to keep the joy in it. To live, to because he knows he has to continue living. He has other kids that he has a wife. So, but he's able, he's, he's relentless in terms of justice, Barbara. Okay, no, we've got to hear from him now because we, <laughs> you, since we've got a clip, right? You clearly love him. Um, sounds like an amazing man. So this is a clip um, and it's narrated from Chris Hansen. It's going to show a little bit of the area and these are the interviews with Libby's grandparents. It's a story Crime Watch Daily has been following since day one. I'm her bestie, aunt. One that has touched the hearts of millions of Americans. Libby's heartbroken grandparents, Mike and Becky Patty, just spoke this week to us. Alexis McAdams from our partner station, Fox 59 in Indianapolis, interviewed them. Every morning I wake up, I come down the hallway and say, good morning, Libby, because there's a picture right there. And then every day I, when I drive to work, I go right past where it happened. And I say good morning again. This is where it happened, just beyond the Monin High Bridge, an old abandoned railroad track turned into a hiking trail in Delphi. Is there anything that you would want to say to Abby and Libby's killer? I've thought about that a lot. Um, and you can plan. You can plan. You can rehearse. You can think you'll know exactly what you're going to say to him if he was face-to-face with him. But until you're standing there... I don't think anybody would ever know what they'd say to him. It's so heartbreaking mm-hmm. to hear that, that, that in your mind you're having a conversation. It's like, what will I do when you finally arrest the killer? And, and you all have spent time with this family, with both families. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has got to take a toll after four years to feel the frustration and this sense of, Helplessness, no matter how close the community is, at the end of the day, we still do not know and who I think, killed these two girls. Exactly. And I think right now, you know, seeing life sort of move on, I mean, this is the year that the girls, both Abby and Libby, would be seniors in high school. So they'd be going to prom, they'd be getting college acceptance letters, they'd be making plans for their future and their life. And Mike and Becky and Anna Williams and Diane and Eric Erskine are, are watching the girls' friends go through all of that and their girls aren't. Um, And like Becky said, you know, one of the things that weighs heavily on on these families is what if we know the person when he's arrested? This is a small town. If he is somebody who's from here, the chances are good that when he's caught, we're going to know him. 
And that adds a whole nother level of horror to the story. You know, I've covered some cases where, um, for years, the unsolved murder, everyone was focused on, it had to be someone in town, it had to be someone in town, and then all of a sudden we find out it was not, that it was actually rather random, and I think all of a sudden there's this sense of, oh my God, we've been looking in the wrong direction this entire time. So I want to toss out the possibility that it may not be someone Mm -hmm. in town. Right. That's entirely possible. And and law enforcement says that. I mean, it could be somebody who is familiar with Delphi from his childhood, from spending summers there with his grandparents or or whatever. You know, maybe he went to school there for a short time, worked there for a short time. But it does seem pretty obvious that the person must have had some familiarity with the area because it's a strange area to just study on the Internet and go there and and wander around and try to figure out where victims might be. You know, the profilers we've interviewed say, this is somebody who planned this for a long time, had this spot picked out and went there and hunted. And so he must've known that there's a pretty good chance that he's going to find what he's looking for there. And so that tells me that he's, he's at least familiar with the area. And at CloudCon, sorry, Drew, Mike was knowing that, look, we just can't focus on Delphi. So we got to get the flyers out. I mean, this has got to be, you know, statewide. If you know him and he's passing through or he's from there and since moved, we have to get it out above and beyond Delphi. It's right. it's funny because, you know, Barb and I uh, and Susan, to a certain extent, spent nearly a year in a conference room writing the podcast together. And, uh, you know, we have literally discussed every conceivable theory uh, as it relates to this case. And we got into some heated discussions about whether this guy is local or not. And one of the things I threw out, and it kind of harkens back to what you said, Anna, which is it perhaps the guy isn't from there. And, you know, what if the investigative strategy is to give whoever did this a false sense of security that they've gotten away with it by uh, appearing as though they are honed in and focused on someone local well, if it's someone who's not from the from the area and is living in Seattle, well, they might just slip up and, you know, because they think they're getting away with it. You know, is that an investigative strategy? We don't know, but it's worth considering. Um, but also there are the things that do lead us back to, you know, maybe there there is probably some familiarity with the area. So we I have we, a I do have a question for you, Andrew. Excuse sure. me for interrupting, but Go ahead. if In the very beginning, Susan really talked about this at length, about if the police handled this not as they should have and called off the search the night before, do you feel that this being a smaller town, that this police department is up to this? Or do you have the Indiana State Police also involved? Are there other agencies? Because this is, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say anything negative about the local police department, but sometimes a bigger agency not only has more resources, but a level of experience with this type of crime. And I do want to preface, it was called off, but there were still hundreds of people. We're talking town. Yeah, I I mean, I I do think, and this was one of the things we talked about a lot, which is, you know, uh, the sheriff's department did call off the search that, you know, that night. But, you know, we have to think about the context of what is call off. You know, we, we had discussions and it was like, you know, uh, I feel like that was a situation where the sheriff basically said, I have to call this off from an official capacity. Yeah, yeah. 
because I can't pay the overtime. I don't have it in my budget. Someone's you know, injured. Yeah. Right. I, I can't pay the insurance if somebody's hurt. But in a town that size, that could have been all it was and everybody continued searching. I mean, it's not like there was just this mass exodus of shrug your shoulders it's and go. It's not a okay, liability technically. Right. I mean, so, so I think we have to, you know, we really have to consider, you know, calling off the search and what that really looked like. I mean, Anna Williams talks about being out that night long past the, the point where the search was called off and there were people on ATVs and people out, you know, searching like, this was not just a up, oh, flip the switch, close the shop, and go home. And again, the small town may have been their detriment because the crime scene had some right. skidding, sorry, urinating. I mean, everyone was in the woods looking. And so the contaminated crime scene was such a huge span because it was such a small town. So everyone was invested. So was it a, would, was it a con? I would also say that because of because of the area. That is, you know, is the is the uh, sheriff's office prepared to handle a murder investigation that is of this scope? I don't know. Is the sheriff's office the most qualified to search the area in Carroll County? Yes, I would say probably so, more so than the FBI or the Indiana State Police. This is their backyard. Yeah. They know this area better than anybody. Mm-hmm. I think all three of these agencies would tell you, are there things we would have liked to have done differently? Sure, that's the case in any one of these, in any investigation like this. But does it rise to, you know, negligence or some sort of, you know, investigative malpractice? That I don't know. What was the impact of the uh, the police pulling some resources that night? Is it possible that the girls were already dead? They just hadn't been found. Do we know when they were killed? We don't know for sure, but um, from the investigative sources that we've talked to, we do believe that. Um, it wasn't too long after the encounter that things probably happened pretty quickly. Um, so, yeah, by the time the search was official um, that evening, yeah, we probably are talking about a, a recovery mission and not a, a search and rescue. Um, I'm not sure that they had the equipment because they were such a small jurisdiction, they didn't have the equipment the first night to fully search the entire area around that bridge. They were able to search a lot of the areas. But for example, I don't believe that they were able to thoroughly search the area where the bodies were ultimately found that first night. Interesting. Okay. So Andrew and everyone... But Andrew, can you explain to me why these two sketches released two years apart are so radically different and the age of the potential killer is such a span that, frankly, it could be anybody? Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm gl- you kicked this to me, Barbara. I, this was one <laughs> of the debates we had is I would pound the table and say, these guys don't look anything alike. And Barb and our other producer, Dan, would say, no, 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 I think there's some similarities. And I was like, I, I would just scratch my head. But um, to answer your question, you know, those sketches came from, you know, from witnesses that were on the trail that day. Um, we haven't been able to speak to those witnesses. They've been very, very tight-lipped, and they're not speaking about their experiences at all. Um, but, you know, it does it does beg the question why they're so different. I mean, 
you know, were there two different people involved in this crime? We don't know. I mean, if you look at those sketches, there's, there's, you know, enough of an age gap that there could, there's generational possibilities there. Um, but you know, that those two sketches are yet another element of this case that, as I have said to Barb a million times, and she's going to roll her eyes when I say this, you can see whatever you really want to see, right? <laughs> like anybody can be convinced of anything. Like, you know, it was it was two on one in our writer's room with Barb and Dan Arthur's producer. We're like, no, no, no. There's some similarities here. Look at the chin, look at the eyes, et cetera. And I was like, you've got a point there. But I would be like, wait a second. One's got facial hair. One doesn't. One's got curly hair. The other's got a hat. Like, there's no similarities at, similarities at all. So those two sketches are just another layer of baffling confusion about what do we have here? <laughs> because it doesn't yeah. seem to clear up anything. Yeah, and and frankly, the strongest evidence is always going to be the physical evidence, the DNA, right. the right. fingerprints, um, more so than anything else, and then matched up with the video. And that's and the even audio. tough to decipher the video. You think physical evidence? What could be better than video? But as I was in the war room and we're seeing shot by shot, it's blurry enough that's on a base. I'm like, wait a minute, his hood's up, his hood's down. That's hair. That's a hat. That's hair. That's a hat. It's so frustrating and you can see whatever you want to see mm -hmm. as Drew was saying or even the brown thing sticking out of his jacket what is, is that, that some sort of a leather kit tools yeah. in it is that just part of the brown hoodie that he's wearing it is it part of his shirt that's sticking out from under his hoodie? So is it the accidental perfect bone because of the town what's what's the white thing around his neck like you know we've right that you know frankly i didn't think it was anything until you know susan was like well what's that and i'm like oh Oh, whoa, this is the first time I'm even noticing that. And it was like, damn it, this can be anything. Uh, it's it's madness. One of the points, though, that, that I, I go back to a lot, we had an FBI um, agent on one of the specials that we did, I think right after the New Direction press conference in April of 2019. And um, oh, we yeah. were talking about the video that was released. The just It's a minute or a second and a half of video of him taking like a step and a half on this bridge. But what this FBI agent saw in that was that he was thinner than he appears in the still image. That the still image makes him look like he might have what could be a typical body for somebody in their 40s or 50s with, you know, more of a gut, a little bit more weight on him. But she was saying, no, if you look at the video that they released of him taking those steps, you can see that the legs are thinner, the arms are thinner, and that she believed that was all stuff he had in the jacket for what he was going to need for what he was planning. Can I add just one other thing about the sketches? And that is, we've had conversations with law enforcement who have said, uh, the important thing to remember about a sketch is it's not necessarily... It's not necessarily for people who don't know. It, the, the goal is not to show a sketch and someone to go, that's John. The goal is for someone who sees the sketch who already thinks it might be John. Yeah. And the sketch is the last kind of piece that they go, I knew it. So the sketch is for somebody who kind of might already have, you know, 75% of their suspicion. And the sketch right. is kind of meant to be that last 25% and it's, it's not for comparing against Facebook right. profile pics. Yeah, they right. say don't, obviously. People not. are doing, you know, and and yeah. I see that in a lot of the, the Facebook groups that discuss this case. Somebody will go, oh, it's this person. 
And you look at them and go, yeah, I could make a case that that person's photo looks like the sketch. Absolutely. But you need a whole lot more to accuse somebody of of a double murder. Something authorities pointed out, and I don't know, I have to test this out, but they said that you would know your family members walk. I don't know if I would know my dad's walk coming towards me if I couldn't tell, you know, what he was wearing or maybe I would. So I asked my husband, would you know my walk? And he said, yeah. And I thought, okay, I have to pay attention to people's walks. Like, can you tell on the bridge? Because remember, the uh, Doug Carter said, "Watch his gait, his walk. He would know him." Would we? Maybe. Has anyone um, has anyone looked into the possibility that this was like one of those railroad enthusiasts, fanatics? Because that bridge is very unique, mm-hmm. and anyone who's into railroads. You know, I know a lot of people, most of them former news writers from television who were always obsessed major, with this. I think I made right? that in my college. <laughs> right. And that they would travel the country just to look at bridges, trestles, all of this stuff. And that could explain the familiarity with this structure. I don't know. We looked uh, into that, archaeology, didn't we, Drew? I mean, we looked into everything. Yeah. I've been in corners of the internet I didn't know existed. <laughs> Me too. Oh, same. <laughs> Me too. Same. Yeah. Same. I want to point out that we talked about Libby's family a lot. Um, you know, I, I do want to point out with what I saw in the special with Anna and how resilient she's been and what she's had to go through that she really, because we, we can tend to talk in sound bites the news, right? That it's wanting to be solved. But the day to day that she has to live, and she said, I feel like saying, What are you doing today? Oh, we're working on it every day. How? What are you doing today specifically? Are you calling the tips? Are you working with the FBI? Like, because imagine if it was your family member or your daughter or your cousin or your niece. Wouldn't you, four years in, you're thinking, What is going on? So that's the most frustrating part as I feel for them feeling that. Yeah. And uh, we've had a couple conversations with Anna. We talk a lot about Mike and Becky Patty because they're so outward and, you know, front facing on this. Anna has chosen a bit of a different tact and, you know, it's, it's up to anybody to kind of determine how they would do this, but we've gotten to know Anna a little bit too. And she's a tough woman and, you know, she is, uh, you know, dealing with a lot uh, obviously, in, in everything that's gone on. And she told Barb and I in the first conversation we had with her, you know, she was incredibly open and candid with us from the jump uh, in our first interview for the podcast. And, um, but she told us at the end, she said, you know, you guys are going to leave and f- have, have this interview. And she's like, but this takes me a couple days to kind of recalibrate myself. So, you know, just know that. And so, you know, we, we were keenly aware after that of, what this kind of thing has done to her life and then to continue this dogged pursuit of justice through doing interviews and having conversations about her daughter. Like, I mean, she, she's living hell after she does those because she has to live through this again, but she knows it's necessary. And this was her only child. Abby was her only child who she lost. Well, you all have done a remarkable job. It's clear that it's your passion, your passion project. And I'm so grateful that you won't let go of it because it's it's keeping the spotlight on these crimes and the conversation going that somehow eventually leads to a lead one way or another. Mm-hmm. And that's why this is so important. The anniversary is important because it jogs everyone's memory on that day 
you know, it's it's not a random thing. There's a reason. And I know there's a tip line. So we want to remind everyone that you can watch HLN Investigates Down the Hill, the Delphi Murders on February 14th and 15th and catch up with the podcast. Thank you so much. We so appreciate your efforts on this. It's been a pleasure having you all. But we're going to keep Susan for a little bit longer. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so Thanks much for, for inviting us. Appreciate it's it, been Anna. an honor to talk about this important Indeed. story. Absolutely. Susan, thank you so much for helping us to get the whole team on here. Um, that's an incredible case. Thank you for that. But we've got another case that we want to update everybody on. This is an update on a tragic death that we featured here. I mean, it is tragic no matter how you look at it. Salvatore Anello, he is the man whose 18-month-old granddaughter, Chloe Weigand, she fell to her death outside of a cruise ship window on July of 2019. He's finally been sentenced, and he's been sentenced to three years probation. So Salvatore, who's from Indiana, we're keeping all the crimes in Indiana right now, was on a family cruise in July, and he was on the Royal Caribbean, the Freedom of the Seas, when his granddaughter died. She slipped from his hands. He There's the surveillance video from the cruise ship where you see him holding her up to look at the window. Uh, the initial reports were that um, she slipped from his hands he says that he didn't know that the window was open that he used to do this thing with his granddaughter where she'd like to knock on the glass it apparently was the only window that was open which is very unusual so no matter how you look at it he feels horrible obviously he was trying to do something um special for his granddaughter and it ended very very tragically no matter how you look at this yeah on oh, the surface, it, when I first looked at this, you think of a grandfather, I think of my dad, I have kids, and that how a, a grandfather would never want to hurt their grandchild. But authorities in Puerto Rico decided, look, this is negligent homicide. So they felt like there was something here. And apparently the surveillance footage shows him looking over, lifting the 18-month-old granddaughter, Chloe, holding her. They went to the brothers' hockey games, like you said, so she was used to touching the glass. He apparently thought there was glass ahead of the bar, a little bit ahead. So over the bar, and it does look different than the rest of the boat, which had the glass, turns out, which is what got me to understand the perplexity here. He's colorblind. And it, he didn't just say that, that the medical records show that he's colorblind. So what you and I see, everything looks a little dark. There's a clear opening. Oh, he saw that. But what would be the malice there? And little Chloe's mom doesn't want charges. And so I would think if there was infighting in the family and something was awry there, maybe. But this, this grandfather appears heartbroken. The medical records show he's colorblind. Why would he want to do this? Nothing in the past showed anything that would lead to this, right? You study, as you know, in crime, the past. Is there a history of this? Is there a history of anything? Nothing. And just the heartbreak to me alone is punishment for life. He said, look. Um, he was interviewed on CBS and the the reporter said, look, the comments say everyone believes you. And he said, that's great, but I still don't have a granddaughter. So I'm heartbroken either way. Yeah. Yeah. They, they really did. The authorities felt that they had to charge him with something because a child has died here. So he entered into a plea deal. He at first was going to fight the charges. And then he said, okay, I will plead guilty. And then um, they came to an agreement that he would get three years probation so he wouldn't have to do any prison time, and that probation will be supervised in Indiana, even though the crime took place 
in Puerto Rico. So the grandfather said, you know, I, I just want to take this plea deal so we can end at least this part of the nightmare for the family. And the family is still suing Royal Caribbean. There's a civil lawsuit, and they claim that the cruise ship allegedly destroyed some surveillance video, and they also blame Royal Caribbean for um, the risky situation, as they describe it, for making this accident possible. And they could have, according to the family, they feel that the Royal Caribbean could have prevented this accident. And Royal Caribbean says there's only one person responsible for this, and that's the grandfather. So the case, as far as the civil case continues, but at least the criminal case, that's that's done. But nothing brings back Chloe. I was Absolutely listening nothing. to the grandfather's attorney who said, look, there was no signage. You know how if you go to a park or a, you know, a public place, it says, do not sit here, do not. Um, and then in certain hotel rooms, the windows only open four inches. So the attorney is saying that the cruise line could have done at least that according to his attorney so that hence the lawsuit meaning if someone's colorblind or doesn't know there's no warning or anything that would prevent this and you know in hindsight everything changes after the fact doesn't it so hopefully mm -hmm. you know nothing will, will bring back this 18 month old but i hope that uh safety precautions i don't know i haven't been on a cruise are in place on other cruise lines too if not already they should be absolutely it is time now for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. Okay, this one, help me with this one. This is just pure insanity. A cannon explodes at a baby shower, one of those gender reveal things, in Michigan, and it kills one of the guests. No. It's unbelievable. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Susan, a 26-year-old man from Heartland was killed Saturday when a cannon backfired and exploded during this gender reveal party. The cannon was purchased at auction and was designed to emit like a flash, a loud noise, and some smoke. It's not meant to kill people. I mean, it's more, yeah. you know, it's a little bit of a show thing. Okay. Well, instead, it blew up and by doing so, there was metal and shrapnel that just flew. It flew so far, it hit three parked cars and this guest, killing him. That's mm. how sharp and dangerous this explosion was. Our thoughts so, go out to his family, but we've seen other tragedies with the gender reveals, with the wildfires in California, and people died there. I say, less is more, and let's let's get rid of the gender reveals. I mean, what? Oh. Or it's just do be, a cake yes. with a really dull knife, yes. right? <laughs> so nobody can be injured cutting the cake. It's, it's too much. It's competing with each other and tragedy can occur. You can assume that this is just all fun. Oh, let's grab the cannon. If it was, you know, you can't assume you know what you're doing. A cannon. I mean, who buys a cannon? Okay, I get it. But still, a cannon? Right. I, I'd, you know, so... Although the cannon did not have any projectiles inside, it is suspected that gunpowder may have at some point have been loaded in the device, uh, and that's maybe what caused the failure, that maybe someone used this cannon inappropriately. If it was bought at auction, it's possible that whoever had it before maybe used it inappropriately. We don't know. That's according to the police. So about four or five guests were outside at the time of the explosion, and the victim was standing 10 to 15 away, 10 to 15 feet away from the cannon when it exploded. I mean, the force of that is incredible. 
So Michaela D. writes, these baby showers are getting out of hand. I'm with you, Michaela. Paula H. writes, whatever happened to the old-fashioned way of being surprised, yeah. right? Or just show a sonogram or a cake, as I say. What is... And are we really in the moment or are we just ready to post it and see how many likes we get? Like, yeah. are we willing to just like, oh, let's see, I'll, I'll do this to one-up people. I know. I mean, at my baby shower, we just, we played a game. How well do you know the mother and the father and their relationship? You know, that's well, it. Well, I wouldn't want to play that. But, <laughs> but nobody okay. got hurt. Okay. Maybe emotionally, yeah, right? I Maybe emotionally. I played that with my daughter and luckily because I had a C-section. And that was the only bright side that I didn't know. So it was a surprise, but I don't want anyone like, what do I know about the relationship? Right. They don't know how to do audio. Right. <laughs> and Tess G writes, some of these gender reveals that people come up with are so crazy and dangerous. So very sad. Absolutely agree with you without question. All right. Well, that wraps up our program for this week. Susan, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you and hear the details of this case. Where can people find you on social media? When do you host your show on HLN? Well, I want to say thank you. And I've been a fan of yours for some time. So I appreciate you having us on and to talk about this crime, which we are hoping. And it's the closest I've ever gotten. You cover crimes, you know, um, that we cover them on the set and I do interviews. But to be there in person and be embedded with this family, with Drew and Barb, and to really have them open their doors to us, it's not easy. I mean, you're thinking, what do they want from us? Are they really here for the right reasons? What do they want? And it's tough for them. And I, I just want to say thank you to Abby and Libby's family. And, uh, you know, it's not about me, so I don't want to get upset. But uh on Weekend Express, you can tune in, and the special is uh, February 14th and 15th, and it's the four-year anniversary. So I'm hoping they find the person who did this. Please Susan, edit out and cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, Susan, the thing is, um, I think a lot of people forget about the amount of compassion and humanity that goes into being a crime reporter because these families let you into their lives they open up their homes. They stay in touch with you. And um, you're guarded on the set. You're, it's your armor. It's a little, mm -hmm. it's a lot different. And, uh, but, you know, Susan, I'd rather have you sitting there and holding my hand than someone who didn't feel anything. And um, I'm always grateful to all the families, the survivors of these crimes because their graciousness, I, I people always ask me, why do you cover these horrendous crime stories? Like, how do you manage? And I always say, I walk away with a piece of inspiration and hope because someone who is struggling lets me in and teaches me yeah. how to cope and how to heal. And I take that as a lesson and I get strength from that. Yeah. And so that, that is a gift. Point. There is strength from that. My mom even said, can you tell him you have kids and he can't cover murders anymore? I said, Mom, nice try. This is the business I'm in. But it's the resilience. It's why I brought up Anna and Mike and Becky. But Anna's out there alone. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have what Mike and Becky have, that togetherness. It's still devastating. But right, the resilience of you guys leave. I got to pick myself back up and learn one foot in front of the other. And especially this year with COVID and everything everyone's going through, it's a lesson learned to us, isn't it? It's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's very important. And and um, I thank God you all are so emotionally connected 
to the families of these girls, you know, because it's, I always say it's a crime family. It really is. Yeah. It's a crime family. Mm-hmm. All right. So where can we, so we know that the program is on, on the 14th and the 15th. What about you? What if anybody wants to follow 7 you? 7am to noon Eastern time. You can tune in along with my mom. My one and only viewer. I <laughs> No, no, no. Thank you so much. I'm Anna G, Anna G News on all social media. That's Anna with one N. And I want to do a little shout out to our fans from the Philippines, Trinidad, and Australia. I love hearing from all of you. And a big shout out to Mama Be Ranting Therapist on YouTube. <laughs> one of her uh, comments made me, right? One of her comments made me laugh so hard. She says she watches this podcast <laughs> while she cleans the house. Love it. So thank you. I love it. We, we love our 4.3 million subscribers wow. on YouTube. We are grateful to you, our crime family. Make sure to catch Down the Hill, the Delphi Murders on HLN February 14th and 15th. And as always, you can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts, and of course on YouTube, and get updates by subscribing to our newsletter on truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. 